Steve Sarkeesian is the SEC's newest $10 million coach. Texas gave its coach a big pay bump and a contract extension earlier this month. Texas A&M fans want to believe the Longhorns are making a Jimbo Fisher-sized mistake. But is Sarkeesian really Jimbo 2.0? Or is he the best thing to hit Texas since Vince Young? Welcome into SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer. Joined today by Nick Kelly, our talented Alabama beat writer from the Tuscaloosa News. We've given John Adams the week off. Nick's joining me today to discuss Kalen DeBoer's first month walking around in Nick Saban's shoes at Alabama. But first, we thought we'd start in Texas. After all, the Longhorns, well, they were one of just two teams to beat Alabama last season. And Sarkeesian got a pay bump for it. Nick, welcome in. Did you get a pay bump after... uh, Covering uh, that that coaching change, you don't have to answer that. Your your salary is not public <laughs> record, but did a great job covering it, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, first off, welcome in. You're stepping into John Adams' shoes. Well, I appreciate it, Blake. Thanks for having me. And uh, Jimmy Sexton's not my agent, so I didn't get uh, I, I not get in on that whole one. The rising tide lifts all boats, so to speak. So unfortunately, that <laughs> I got to hire Jimmy apparently. Yeah, shouldn't we all, right? I don't think he's uh, dealing with clients down on our level, but uh, he is dealing with uh, a lot of the the richest coaches in, in college football, and now Steve Sarkeesian is is among them. And as I said in the open, you know, if you you follow what Texas A and M fans are sort of chattering about here, they they want to believe that uh, Texas is prematurely hitching its horse to a Jimbo style wagon. Of course, A and M spent big to hire Jimbo from. From Florida State, started off okay, looked a little better in 2020, and then they doubled down on Jimbo, gave him the big contract extension, gave him the raise, upped his buyout, and well, when it didn't work out, they had to pay him $77 million. But um, what do you think, Nick? Because when I look at this situation, I don't see necessarily a Jimbo 2.0 here with Sarkeesian. I, I see a guy that uh, led Texas to the college football playoffs, somewhere Jimbo never went uh, with Texas A&M. Uh, I see someone who is probably right in the midst of his the peak of his coaching career, whereas Jimbo's peak occurred at Florida State. And when I look at the way Texas is recruiting, developing, performing on the field, we know Sarkeesian's a good play caller. He seems to have the other elements of this job down too. To me, this looks like a worthwhile investment for Texas and sort of the cost of doing business in 2024. Uh, what's your take on, on Sark and uh, the Longhorns? Yeah, worthwhile or not, I think you have to do it to an extent, right? I mean, th- that really is somewhat market value. I mean, it was a big jump because he, he was getting, what, 5.8 or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. So it almost doubled his salary, but that's kind of what the top coaches in college football are getting paid. I mean, that, that's what made Nick Saban – one of the best probably deals in college football because he wasn't necessarily getting paid that much more than people who had accomplished a lot less than him. Um, but that's the reality. I mean, it's, it's the market. And so whether it's uh, whether it works out or not, I mean, I don't think you could avoid paying that if you wanted to keep him. You know, you, you covered the Alabama coaching search and we know where it landed with, with Kalen DeBoer. And, and I don't have any doubt that, from day one of that search, DeBoer was on the short list of athletic director Greg Burns' candidates. Um, do you have any sense for how much Sarkeesian may or may not have played into the search um, or to what degree Alabama may have been interested in him? Because, 
you know, we, we know he sort of revived his coaching career with Nick Saban as his offensive coordinator. And, and obviously we know what he's done since then. I thought when this job opened that Sarkeesian would be very suited to replacing Nick Saban. I just never really expected that he would leave what he'd built in a short time at Texas. Um, what's your sense for how much maybe Sark did or didn't factor into the coaching search? Yeah, I don't have any hard, you know, this is exactly what happened with Sark, but just my own speculation or even my own educated guess, I think he was at least a phone call, right? I mean, you'd kind of be silly not to at least gauge that because Sark is beloved around here. And and I think that uh, if if Nick Saban had retired after 2020, then Steve Sarkeesian might be the coach here. And so I I think that's the thing is, is he's well thought of here. He's been successful at Texas. Um, so I think it would have made a lot of sense for them to have reached out to him. And I'd be kind of surprised if someone who's as thorough as Greg Burns wouldn't have at least made that phone call. Um, now, how far that got along, I don't know. I mean, to my knowledge, and I think that when I reported a couple of, you know, kind of top candidates, uh, it all blurs together because the days were long and didn't get much sleep. But whenever it was that, uh, I'd said that Kalen DeBoer is kind of one of the, the top candidates. Um, I think Sarkeesian had already kind of announced he was staying or that he had agreed to an extension or something to that effect. Um, so I, I don't know how serious it ever was, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if he was pursued in some way, or at least, you know, the, the tires were kicked there. Um, but then again, it's not, it's not something where Alabama settled and took, you know, they, they had to wait several days and didn't get who they want. I mean, they hired the coach of the year, um, a guy who beat Steve Sarkeesian in Texas. And so um, I don't know that Kalen DeBoer was necessarily lower on the list than Sark, but it would be surprising if Sark was not considered just because of the Alabama connection and the Sabans. Uh, they love him. Uh, he's done well. So it would have made a lot of sense for those tires to at least be kicked. But to what extent, I don't know. Yeah, interestingly, DeBoer is actually two and zero against uh, Sarkeesian now, with with the two matchups being postseason games, one in a in a bowl game a couple years ago, and then of course in the playoff uh, last year. I thought that was interesting during the coaching search. You know, Dan Lanning was obviously a name that that surfaced uh, to some degree early on. Well, DeBoer's three and zero against Lanning. He's two and zero against Sark. The counter argument is obviously Sark has worked at Alabama, worked for Saban. Uh, he's familiar with the terrain. I really think. Um, between those two, I'm not sure that Alabama could have gone wrong. I, uh, not that anyone really cares what I think, or, or maybe they do, but whenever the coaching search started, my, my sense was if you can get Sark, great. Uh, never thought it was going to happen, though, for him leaving Texas. And so that's why I quickly moved on to Kalen DeBoer should be Alabama's top candidate. And, of course, Greg Byrne listened to me. Why not, right? I'm pretty sure that's what, exactly what happened, Blake. Well, Blake Topmeyer mentioned Kalen DeBoer, so I better, I better give this guy a call. That's why these things tend to work, right? I mean, when you look at what Texas brings back, you know, headlined by Quinn Ewers, and they bring a lot back on the offensive line, they've got to reload a little bit on the defensive front. They had to reload at wide receiver. They've done so with several transfers, including Isaiah Bond from Alabama. It's my belief that Texas is probably the biggest threat to Georgia to win the SEC this season. Now, you know, we add the caveat there that a conference championship probably doesn't mean as much as it used to, at least in terms of the playoff. You don't have to win the SEC to go to the playoff. You don't even have to finish in the top two in the SEC. 
to go to the playoffs. So uh, whether it ma- matters or doesn't, I think Texas and, and Georgia are the two front runners. How do you see it? Because, you know, for the last several years, we would have started that conversation in most years with some order of Alabama and Georgia or Georgia, Alabama. Now I'm, I'm kind of sliding Texas into the shoes that Alabama had been filling. Uh, who do you see as, as being the, the top threat to, to Georgia this year? Yeah, I think Texas makes a lot of sense. Um, Ole Miss is another one that I'm keeping an eye on watching um, to see what they can do, see if they can kind of take that next step and not only have a successful year, but truly compete for the SEC. Um, but yeah, Alabama is just, it's one big question mark. It's one big mystery, really. It doesn't mean it won't be good. It doesn't mean that it will be bad. It's just, we just don't know. I mean, the tur- there's been so much turnover. It's a whole new system. I mean, it, you have to imagine there's some growing pains, um, but also, until this point, Kalen DeBoer, everywhere he's been, he's won. Now, of course, he's never coached in the SEC. He's never coached in this environment. Um, but but he's been in a lot of different spots and he's won. And so we'll see if that translates to this spot. But it's also, I think the people that expect Alabama to be what it was under Saban are setting themselves up for disappointment because Nick Saban's, his main success happened in a different era of college football. This is a completely different era. Uh, NIL, the transfer portal. And, and so it's not somewhere – I don't think you can very easily build a dynasty like you could through recruiting at the very least, uh, like Saban did for much of his time here. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's going to be really fascinating to see what it looks like. But I, I would say Ole Miss, to me, stands out as a, as a threat to Georgia. Texas, like you said. I, I mean, for a place like Texas that has the resources that they do, especially in NIL – I mean, you're always going to have a shot to compete. So you have a good coach in Sark. And so the resources are there to do it. And so it's just a matter of making sure you put it all together in the field. But there will be – I mean, it's going to be a test for Sarkeesian because he is losing some good players. And and that's what made Nick Saban successful over his tenure is he figured out how to keep competing even when he lost good players. Kirby Smart's doing that now, right, where he's losing extremely talented players and he's still finding ways to build elite teams. And so um, I don't really believe that Sark can't do that. Uh, but it is a different, you know, era. And now he's what year four uh, in Texas. And so it, it only gets trickier the farther, farther you go along to replicate that success. You know, when I used to look at, at potential playoff qualifiers in the preseason, I think my biggest question used to be like, is this team talented enough to go undefeated or at the very least finish with no more than one loss? Because with the exception of 2023 Florida State, qualifying for the four-team playoff was all about avoiding losses, right? If you're if you undefeated from a Power 5 conference, again, with the exception of FSU this past year, you were in. And if you weren't undefeated from a Power 5 conference, but let's say you're in the SEC and you finished with one loss, you had a really good shot of getting in. The game has changed in the 12-team playoff. And now, as I consider preseason playoff hopefuls, uh, sure, if I think you're good enough to go undefeated, then obviously you're a playoff hopeful. But I don't have that qualifier anymore. And I think more than ever, I'm looking at a team's schedule. Um, because if I were to rank, say, the top five SEC programs in the power rankings, you know, if I were to devise some sort of power rankings coming into next season, Alabama would be in my top five. But as I think about maybe the five likeliest teams to make the playoff from the SEC, next year, I don't think Alabama would be on my list. And again, it's not because 
I don't think they're one of the five best teams in the conference, but when I look at their schedule, it is one of the more rugged uh, schedules in the SEC. You know, whereas when when we look at other playoff hopefuls like an Ole Miss, like an LSU or a Missouri, I think their schedules are much more favorable. And then you look at the the murderer's row of what Kalen DeBoer has to face in his first tour of the conference. I mean, he, he's got Georgia. He's got LSU on the road. He's got Oklahoma on the road. He's got Missouri. He's got the Iron Bowl. He's got Tennessee on the road. Like, it, it really does stack up as one of the tougher schedules in the SEC. So, boots on the ground in Tuscaloosa, like, do you think fans have their heads wrapped around the possibility that even in this first year, the 12 team playoff, there's a, I mean, there, we have to consider realistic the possibility that Alabama might be on the outside looking in of the playoff this year. I mean, you look at that schedule and it's, it's hard to consider them a shoe in, I think. Yeah. Like you said, it's all about who you face before you get there. Right. I mean, just because you might be a better team on paper, if, if you have, a tougher schedule doesn't necessarily matter if you've got a better team on paper. I mean, that, that's the thing you look at, I kind of half joke about this with people, but there's a legitimate chance that Missouri comes into Bryant Denny stadium on homecoming undefeated, but their schedule's not that tough before that. I think the toughest opponent they have before that game is maybe Auburn, unless we're forgetting someone. Um, and, and Alabama on the flip side has Georgia coming into town and, and some other tough games. And so it, uh, so just because Missouri's the undefeated one coming into Bryant Denny does not, you know, mean that Alabama's not going to win that game or not be better than Missouri. So it it is it is very possible that Alabama is on the outside looking in if they can't figure out how to win some of those big games. And and again, it's just we just don't know. I mean, it, it's so hard to project because their team's going to look so different, their defense is going to look different. Like I've been trying to study this new four two five that they're going to be running under uh, Kane Womack and and kind of how they're going to move some pieces to different spots on the defense, really. Um, even putting a depth chart together, it's kind of like my mind is having trouble grasping some of that. So the point being, like, it's just going to be so different. We just don't know. Um, and maybe it comes together really well, or maybe it doesn't. And this first year is a rough first year like it was for Saban. When you look at the um, biggest questions facing Alabama this year in, in DeBoer's first season, what would top your list? Because as we think back a year ago, like quarterback situation, I think was top of mind um, for, for Alabama. They, they had a couple other question marks too, but it, you know, really the conversation started with quarterback. Now we fast forward a year later, and yes, there's the question of how Jalen Milrow is going to adjust to a new coach, a new system, but we know how talented this guy is now. I mean, uh, he almost single-handedly powered the offense uh, in the Rose Bowl against Michigan and, and nearly delivered an overtime victory in that game. So he's sort of quieted the waters, at least from my perspective, as it pertains to quarterback. But, um, you know, what are some of the top questions you think facing Alabama as they, they head towards spring practice? Quarterback is something that I'm watching just because yes, Jalen is very experienced. He's uh, a guy who's shown flashes of being really, really good. But also when you have a new coaching staff who's making new decisions as a new offense, you aren't necessarily guaranteed anything. I'm not saying that he won't be the starter, but I just think it's going to be interesting to see how the coaches handle that. Will they open it up and say, hey, show us you're the guy? Or will they say, yep, Jalen's the guy until he loses the job? You know, it's his job. Um, so I'll be curious to see how they handle that. Uh, but the biggest question to me is what is this secondary going to be like? I mean, they got gutted. I mean, you lost your two starting cornerbacks in the NFL. 
Um, at least one will be a first round pick, maybe both. And then you also lost Caleb Downs, your All-American safety to Ohio State. And so you got to replace an elite guy there, one of the best players on your team. And you also had Jalen Key, a starting safety. He ran out of eligibility. Um, Trey Amos, uh, one of their basically their third cornerback, he went to Ole Miss. And so th this secondary is going to look so different. And I would have to think they're probably going to try to get someone from the portal uh, after the spring uh, because they just don't have a ton of depth there right now. I mean, like, you look at the depth chart, they might have to start a freshman at corner right now if they don't get someone um, that uh, has a little more experience. And so, yeah, it's that secondary is a big question mark to me to see how well they defend um, and really just how this this team adjusts to this new style of defense because they're not necessarily going to have the traditional two edge rushers like they've recruited for all these years. Um, and, and so the different positions, and I would rattle them off right now if I had them all memorized, but <laughs> I don't like the different names, but essentially they're going to have one guy who's more of that, you know, the edge they've recruited, but then the other part of that four in the front is going to be kind of a tweener, so to speak, of between a D end and an outside linebacker. And so these are different types of, um, bodies they'll have to recruit and, and go get over time. And so how, how does this group that's recruited for the saving defense do in Kane Womack's defense? Um, it's another big question to me. And, and frankly, how does this offensive line come together? I mean, it, it was not good at times last year. I mean, I know you saw that. I think anyone who saw Alabama saw that. Um, they brought a new center in, Parker Brailsford from Washington. Uh, I think they're excited about him, and he's played well at times. Um, but yeah, what does this new group look like? Who, who starts? Who who is you know kind of their their leader there? And so um, those are some of the position groups I'm most curious about, and we'll kind of see as it goes through the spring. Yeah, I think you you kind of hit it there because I, I was curious which direction you were going uh, or would go. Like I, I sort of thought defensive backfield, which you highlighted, and I also thought offensive line, uh, which which you were quick to. I mean, for me, those are those are two. There's other question marks too. Maybe not. Maybe definitely. I think more than than usual. You would expect from from Alabama. Certainly, when Nick Saban was a coach, you didn't expect this many question marks. I think it's also to be expected uh, in this day and age when you have a coaching transition. Doesn't matter what program you are, you're going to endure uh, some meaningful departures. And you know, there were a handful of of key transfers out of Alabama that made big news. You covered it. Others covered it, you know, in the first week of DeBoer being on the job. I, for one, wasn't shocked. Uh, like I said, it's just what you expect anytime there's a coaching change at, at any program. But as I look at the three biggest losses, or at least what I would consider to be the three biggest losses in the transfer uh, hot stove league, I guess, for, for Alabama, you mentioned they lost Caleb Downs, uh, their star safety, Isaiah Bond, as, as I mentioned earlier, transferred uh, to Texas, who was the Iron Bowl hero, caught the, the winning touchdown pass in that game. And then Caden Proctor from the offensive line transferred to Iowa. If you could have just one of those three back for this season, which one are you snagging for Alabama? Oh, 100% Caleb Downs. No doubt. Isaiah Bond is a good player. I think he'll be okay at receiver. They've got some guys. They brought in Jeremy Bernard, uh, the Washington receiver, to help. Um, they got Ryan Williams, the recruit that uh, reclassified a uh, five-star guy that I mean, people, anyone who watches him is just like, this dude's different. Um, a lot of people who have been around these parts, and I wasn't around when Julio Jones was recruited, but have talked about 
that getting a Ryan Williams could have a similar influence to getting Julio or the similar big deal as getting Julio was. So I think they'll be okay at receiver. Offensive line, it would have been nice to have kept Proctor, um, but I think he really just wanted to go home. I think he was a little homesick and just, I think it's maybe a better fit for him to go back to Iowa. Um, And yeah, they have questions there, but he was not as automatic and as just game changing as Caleb Downs was. I mean, Caleb Downs is ridiculous for a freshman. Uh, I have a feature that will never see the light of day now about his training regimen that I was going to write in the off season. Uh, that I, you know, I, as you know, it's, you know, you have a chance to collect at media day uh, for these bowl games. And I got a lot of good stuff on what this guy does. And I mean, he was literally in the weight room before just by anyone else. I mean, just the way that his teammates talked, the veteran teammates talked about him uh, was next level. And of course, most teammates don't talk badly about their teammates, but just some of the details they even gave me, was just next level. I mean, this guy's a pro and he's going to be missed on this defense. He was fantastic last year. I think he'll be great this year. And so it's uh, really just, I mean, if you like good football, it's a bummer, you know, not to be able to watch him play uh, every Saturday. It was fun to watch him. Um, So I think far and away, he's the biggest loss uh, for this team. And a guy that if, if I could wave a magic wand and bring one back, he'd be the guy. This might be, Tough to say because, you know, you fall in the old coaching cliche of every game matters. Yeah, we know it. We know every game matters, right? But as you look at the schedule this year, what do you think the most important game for Alabama is? Um, Probably the Georgia game. I mean, it, if that's fair to – I mean, it, it's early and maybe it's – maybe the bias of it's it's a really fun big game that we haven't seen in – Tuscaloosa for a good while. I mean, they, they played, I think, in Tuscaloosa during COVID, but not the same thing. Um, to me, that, that's that's a huge one just because if DeBoer can win that game fourth week of the season, beat Kirby Smart, and win that first SEC matchup, like, he doesn't get Vanderbilt for his first SEC game. He gets Georgia. Like, that. that's, that's kind of ridiculous, honestly. Um and the fact that you start with that, if they can win that, it establishes that A, Alabama's not going anywhere. B, Kalen DeBoer is more than cut out to win in the SEC and coach in the SEC. And C, I mean, it's that's a huge win on your resume for the playoff, um, assuming Georgia's going to be good again, <laughs> which I imagine they will, but I don't have any reason to believe they won't be. Um, and so, no, I think that game, if you can win it, it's huge. Of course, if you go to LSU, you go to Tennessee, you get those wins, that'd be huge as well. But I think Georgia winning that game gets belief from the college football world, gets belief from your team, and gets people believing in DeBoer. So I, I think that that far and away, if you can win that game, would be a huge win. That's an interesting take there because if he does win that one, well, you can get rid of all the question marks, right? Uh, I mean, you, you put it like he, he calms everything. And there, there's no doubt, I think at that juncture, at least, yeah, Alabama got the, got the right guy. Um, I guess I was, I was looking and you can go a number of directions on, on this question, right? There's, there's no one magic answer. I look more at that, uh, uh, that November game against LSU. Cause I think like, who's going to fill this void with Nick Saban out of the picture? Um, maybe Alabama's not going anywhere, but if there is sort of a power vacuum, I think, well, Brian Kelly and LSU are are sitting there, and and they've already beat Alabama once with Brian Kelly. Didn't get it done last year, but I think if if Kelly can go two and one 
against Alabama in his first three seasons, that probably gets – we don't know what's going to happen elsewhere, but I, th- I think if, if LSU wins that game, they're in good shape, pretty good shape to make the playoff, whereas I would worry about Alabama's chances if they're losing to LSU because – you got Georgia on the schedule. You got some of those other tough games that I mentioned. You know, is there going to be enough wins to get to the playoff if you had a loss to, to LSU? I don't know. I start to question it. So, uh, yeah, the Georgia one could could quiet any any idea that Kalen DeBoer wasn't the guy for the job. Uh, but I think there's a little grace if you lose to what presumably would be number one Georgia at that time. I think there's a little bit less grace, even though it's on the road in Tiger Stadium if you lose to LSU and, and Brian Kelly, maybe that's unfair because Kelly's in year three, you know, he's, he's got a um, dynamic quarterback coming back, even though he's the backup and, and Garrett Nussmeyer, he's had a couple years to build that thing. So maybe that's an unfair expectation, but I, I look at that LSU as the game is sort of the biggie, I think in, in year one for DeBoer. Yeah. I mean, I can guarantee you Alabama fans, they're, they're going to not be happy if these games aren't won. There's no, I mean, I think reasonable people will say, well, yeah, that's year one for Kalen DeBoer. If they don't win at Tiger Stadium, it's not the end of the world. But there aren't a lot of reasonable college football fans, nor I mean, nor should they necessarily have to be. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where it's Alabama. I mean, there's been plenty of success here, and they have the resources to be able to succeed. So it's not, it's not like Missouri. Sorry, Missouri. I'll you know, it's my alma mater, so I'll I'll crap on Missouri. But uh, it's it's not like Missouri had Nick Saban, then all of a sudden. They don't have Nick Saban anymore. I mean, it's Alabama. Like this is this is college football country through and through, and so I think fans are. Any loss this year is going to be alarming to an extent. Uh, maybe not as much as it was under Saban, but I, I think that because of the way that fans here have been conditioned to winning, any loss is not going to necessarily be welcomed. <laughs> and uh, you know, just you know, hey, we'll be fine in the way that maybe a reasonable person would. So. I do agree that there might be some, I don't know, concern, but just more, okay, what's going on if they lose to LSU? All right, on your way out the door, Nick, uh, I should have warned you that on SEC Football Unfiltered, it's always a good time for predictions, bold takes. And yes, we're <laughs> six months away from the season, but who cares? We don't, we don't hold back on our preseason takes. A couple weeks ago, I was looking at the over-under lines for SEC teams for this season, and Alabama's kind of a tough one for me. Uh, if I was throwing some money around, I'd stay away from it, but I stay away from sports betting in general. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not putting money behind my picks, but I got my picks. Alabama is listed over and under at nine and a half wins. I took the under. I got Alabama as we sit here in late February at nine and three. So I'm taking the under on nine and a half. Over under nine and a half. You going to refute me? You you take in the over? Or are you with me on the under? Who? Mm. That's tough. Like if I was just picking a straight record, I would probably say ten and ten and two or nine and three. Um, that's where. <laughs> so you're telling the gambling public the to stay away from this line? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I. Well, just to just to give an alternate take, since I'm on the fence, I'll give the over uh, since you gave the under. But I think that right around that nine and a half is probably pretty fair uh, for for this team because I think it's just inevitable that you're going to lose at least one game. So that's 
<laughs> that let's start with that. And there's probably a pretty good chance that just because there's an adjustment, you lose a second game. And so, um, and it's the SEC, a tough schedule. Third game is very possible. So, um, yeah, I think somewhere around 10 and 2, 9 and 3 is what I'd say. And so I think it's pretty fair. All right. Well, if you're right, Nick, we will uh, make sure not to give you any credit. And if you're wrong, we will mock you <laughs> mercilessly. Uh, thanks for filling in and uh, giving us the update on Alabama and Sark. And uh, thanks to listeners for stopping by and checking us out on this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered.